You can go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you've got a copy of God's Word, with you to the book of Malachi this morning. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time today, in the book of Malachi. Along the way, these past four months or five months, somewhere in there, we've seen how God was and is at work in the world, how He's working to bring to pass His unbroken plans and keep His unbroken promises. In the beginning, we saw God had a plan for the men and women He created in His image, that they would worship Him and walk with Him. His glory would be their joy. He was all that they needed, but we saw they wanted something more, actually something less. They traded God's glory for their own, but it didn't go as they planned, right? The serpent promised a better life, but sin brought nothing into the world but brokenness, a broken relationship with God, broken relationships with creation and with one another in many, many ways. The Old Testament tells the story of that brokenness, broken people and broken promises, right? Sin, sickness, and death spreading as sin reigns in the hearts of humanity. And yet there in all the stories of the brokenness, we've seen another story. In all the failed plans, we've seen a better story, one focused on the one who started it all. In the midst of all the brokenness, when it looks around us like every plan has failed, we behold this unshakable truth that God's plans remain and His promises stand unbroken. Just last week, we saw how Ezra and Nehemiah point us to God's determination, not just to rebuild a temple or to rebuild a wall, but to rebuild the lives and the hearts of his people, reconstructing their worship in a way that would restore their joy. And as the people confessed in Nehemiah, we've seen God's faithfulness, even in the midst of his people's wickedness and rebellion. We've seen his patience over and over again as the people strayed and rebelled and Then decades, and then the centuries that followed their return from exile, we see really come to be no different in that regard. When God spoke through the prophet Malachi, the final words of Scripture his people would hear from the Lord for 400 years, he spoke to a people whose renewed commitment that we saw last week in the book of Nehemiah had already begun to wane. Their hearts had grown cold, their worship had become apathetic, They were a people going through the motions while everything about their lives called their worship into question. So the Old Testament ends with this series of questions, with what's actually this kind of satirical or sarcastic series of questions that God takes up from his people, in part just to show their absurdity. We're fond of saying in our lives that there's no such thing as a stupid question. But at times, the tone of the book of Malachi might beg to differ with that assertion. Here's God who has done everything that we've already seen in this series, everything we've said this morning in summary, and much, much more that we haven't been able to cover over these weeks. He's done all these things to demonstrate his love and his justice and his worth to his people. He has revealed himself clearly and proven his character time and time again. When they kept rebelling, God kept redeeming. When they were in trouble, God stepped in to rescue them. When they were in exile, God brought them back. God is patient and he's kind and his grace was so predictable that Jonah would use it against him, right? Whenever Jonah didn't want to go do what God called him to do, he said, God, I didn't want to do this because I knew you're gracious, 
You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're kind. I knew this is what you would do, God, because it's who you are. God had clearly revealed himself to his people, but in their sin, they persisted in what I'll call the pretense of ignorance and misunderstanding. Because I think as is often the case in our lives, if we're honest, they grasped all that we've seen in the series on an intellectual level. They understood it in their minds, but they would have known all the right answers. As one of my Sunday school teachers once told our class, right, if you're in Sunday school or you're in life group or you're in church and somebody asks a question, the answer is usually one of two things. It's usually either yes or it is Jesus. Jesus. Yes or Jesus, right? That's it. A vast majority of the time. Malachi wasn't very far here from the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. These people knew the answers. They knew what God had done for them. They knew they would have right, destroyed us in a game of Old Testament trivia, if that's what we were doing. But there's a difference in knowing the answers and letting those answers actually shape our hearts and our lives. That's clear here in Malachi. We ended last Sunday with the people declaring a new commitment to God. We will not neglect the house of our God. That was, that was their word. That was their commitment to the Lord. So what do you think Malachi has to address here in the book of Malachi, right? Surely they hadn't already broken that commitment, right? So we've read through much of the Old Testament. As we've preached through the broad strokes of the Old Testament story, you might be wondering at this point, what questions could the people possibly have left? Well, God relays several that they had on their minds and on their hearts here, addressing them one by one. But as we look this morning, we want to look at three big questions that God deals with here through the prophet Malachi. And they're questions that I think people are still answering today, both inside the church and outside. Maybe questions you're wrestling with this morning, or certainly questions that somebody in your circle of family or friends are wrestling with or dealing with or are going to. And so thankfully this morning, for Israel and for us, we see that God gives an answer to those questions. The beauty of it is this. We have lots of questions here this morning. We're going to look at three questions. But the simplicity of God's answer is this, that there's one answer for all of the questions. So this morning, we're going to look at that. Three questions, one answer. Let's get into that. First, we find, as we look at Malachi, they question God's love. They question God's love. Malachi 1, verse 1, begins this way, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's truly astounding. As we look at all that God had done to demonstrate his love, that still the people were questioning this most basic reality, saying, God, how have you loved us? That's what they want to know. And God answers them, as we often see Jesus do in the Gospels. He answers their question with another question, saying, isn't Esau Jacob's brother? Right, see, the Sunday school answer works here. Is Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he is. 
But then God's answer maybe gets a little more confusing because why would you answer somebody who's questioning your love by talking about someone that you hate? First, let's understand here this morning, God is not expressing here ill will or animosity toward Esau and his descendants in Edom in the way that we might think when we hear the word hate. What he's pointing to is this, that he chose Jacob, that he chose Israel, and it wasn't because of anything that they had earned or deserved by Jacob. Jacob was God's chosen, Israel was God's chosen purely on the basis of his grace. And so then as God repeatedly poured out his grace and his favor and his kindness on the people of Israel, he was doing it to bring about his purposes on earth. And as we look at that, as we look at how God had dealt so kindly and graciously and patiently and poured out his favor in such abundant ways on the people of Israel, if you were to look at Israel and then to look at the people of the descendants of Esau and the people of Edom, by contrast, you would have said, they are hated, they are despised, they are rejected forever. Right? To which you might be sitting here and thinking, well, then I'm not sure if that's the case. I'm not sure I don't agree with the Israelites' question here. Right? How is a loving God going to reject people forever? Two things on that we see here. Yes, God poured out his grace in a special way on the people of Israel to demonstrate his goodness and faithfulness in the midst of their rebellion. But along the way, have we not seen that God demonstrates that it's faith, faith and nothing else that's the true means by which his saving grace is received? Was Rahab cut off from God's grace because she was not born into the people of Israel? Was Ruth cut off from God's grace because she wasn't born an Israelite? No. There's always been an opportunity for those who knew God and believed God to receive his grace. We saw it before God's promise to Abraham with Noah's faith and salvation. We see it throughout the Old Testament as God continued to speak through his prophets to those outside of Israel and repeatedly expressed his purpose of blessing his people so that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We've seen that before and we see it right here in Malachi chapter 1 verse 5. God says to his people, just wait, you'll see I will be worshipped not just within the geographical bounds of Israel but in all the nations of the earth, even in people and in places where it might appear that the Lord's anger is forever. The Lord's greatness will be made known in all the nations of the earth. And so God really begins with this twofold answer to his people questioning his love. First, he says, kind of look at what I've done for you. But second, he says, look around at what I'm about to do in the world around you. Yet they were still questioning his love with what we see here, were ultimately devastating results. Their questioning God's love was reflected in their relationship with him and in the way they dealt with one another. God, we see, is a loving father who was good to his people, but they corrupted their relationship with him, polluting their worship. Instead of bringing God their best and sacrifice, they were bringing lame animals, sick animals, bringing what was of lesser value to give to the Lord. God says in verse 8, if you offered that to your governor, would they take it? Would they accept it? God's glory will be known among the nations, but yet his people were taking him for granted, nonchalantly snorting, it says, at their offenses against him. God has even harsher words here for the priests, who should have been the ones who were guarding knowledge, who should have been the ones who were 
protecting the truth and sound instruction, and instead they're feeding the corruption of the people with their false teaching. They're more concerned with the approval of men than with the God they claim to worship. Their worship was broken and corrupt, and as is always eventually the case, that brokenness in their relationship with God spread to the way they treated those around them. The order of God's charges here reflects the order of his message to Moses in Leviticus 19. He says there, loving God leads to loving those who are made in his image. And there too, the people were failing. Malachi specifically points here to the unfaithfulness of the people in marriage. God kept his covenant with his people, but they neither kept their covenant with him or their covenants and their promises to one another. They questioned his love, not in an attempt to understand it better. That's not the kind of questioning this was. They weren't actually trying to genuinely understand God's love, trying to wrap their minds around it. If they were, then they would have seen his steadfast love and faithfulness that he had shown to his people for centuries. They were rejecting the reality of God's love, at least in practice snorting at it in their worship and in their relationships with their spouses, being adulterous and unfaithful. Because they got the love of God wrong, they got everything else wrong in their lives. What we believe about God matters. Theology matters because what we truly believe ultimately gets revealed in our lives and in our actions. This morning, I would just ask you to consider what does your life reflect about the love of God? Because our love for God and for one another should reflect God's love toward us. And our love, although imperfectly in this fallen and sinful world, should look increasingly like God's love, like Jonah's description of God in Jonah 4, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Many questioned it then, many question it now, but that is the reality of God's love. Second, we see they question God's justice. They question God's love, and then they question his justice. Malachi 2.17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice. God's tired. Tired of their false accusations and their disingenuous questions. As, as with God's love, this isn't the people saying here, Lord, help me see, help me understand how this is just and right. This is his people leveling a charge against God. They're making an accusation that the evil prosper and the good suffer unjustly because the God of justice and righteousness is missing in action. They're asking, where is the God of justice? I would summarize his answer here as, when justice comes, you'll be the first to know. God says to his people, behold, look, because if they're watching, they will see the messenger who's coming that he's sending to prepare the way for the Lord's arrival. Malachi 3.1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. When the Lord comes, he says, some will be refined and purified. These two images here of a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap, they're images of intense processes that lead to purification. Heat that would separate like in gold, refining, that would separate good from bad, heating it up to that point that it would be purified. Soap that would be used to wash clothes that were then beaten against the rocks to cleanse the fabric. He says, when the Lord comes, some will experience this type of discipline and purification. It's a glimmer of hope. But then down in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Those who persist in their sin could expect swift judgment. The people are complaining because it didn't seem fair to them that those around them weren't receiving the judgment they deserved, at least in their eyes. But part of God's point here is this, that neither are you. That was his answer to them, neither are you, right? But if you persist in your sin, you will. God singles out for judgment here those who treat others unjustly and unfairly, those who lie and cheat and oppress those who were unable to defend themselves, the widow and the orphan, the immigrant. Judgment is coming for those who act unjustly and do not fear the Lord. Because, moving on to verse 6, God does not change. God's character doesn't change. His plans and his promises don't change. That offers us certainty and hope when we trust in him. It gives us a solid foundation upon which we can stand when things are going crazy around us. It also offers us certainty when we turn away from the Lord. Malachi here again returns to the offerings of the people to their God, this time focusing on the whole congregation instead of just the priests. He's charging them here with the crime of robbing God, which has resulted in a curse upon the nation because God does not change. His commandments, his statutes are just and right. His character is just and right, and therefore he will make all things right in this world. The people were not wrong. And looking around and seeing that there are a lot of things in this world that are unjust, that are upside down. But they were wrong about who was to blame for that situation. They blamed God, but God shows the same patience to them as he does to others. He's not on vacation. He's not missing in action. He is patient and merciful and kind. He's offering his people an opportunity to turn from their sin and to turn back to him. That's what he is doing here through the prophet Malachi. As universal as their sin and their unrighteousness and their injustice was, God's blessing was just as universally and widely available to those who would repent of their sin and turn to faith in him. God says in Malachi 3, verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Malachi says, turn from your sin, turn to faith in the Lord. And then in verse 12, we see the result. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Just like they rejected God's love, so they rejected the reality of God's justice. And once again, their rejection was revealed in their lives. Instead of walking in justice and in righteousness, instead of living to honor God and to honor those created in his image, they walked away from him and lived only for the good of themselves. That was seen in the way they oppressed and exploited those who worked for them, the way they ignored the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. God ties their mistreatment of others directly to their failure to fear him. Our justice should reflect the justice of God who heard the cries of his people when they were enslaved in Egypt and when they were oppressed in the time of the judges and when they were persecuted in exile and acted to deliver them time and time again. We see them questioning here God's justice. Many still do the same today. But God has not changed. He is still just and righteous, and he is working to make all things right. They questioned God's love and his justice. Third, we see they questioned God's worth. God's worth. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Here's the inevitable outcome of their rejection of God's love and God's justice. If God doesn't love them and will not act justly, as they've charged, then why would they trust him? Why would they follow him? What's the point? If the arrogant are blessed and evil prospers, then is it really worth it to follow God? That is the question they are asking. And the people conclude that, no, it's not. It's vain. It's pointless to serve God. And some of the people at least made that decision. But we're told here in the book of Malachi that all of them did not make that decision. decision. We're told that in the midst of God's sinful and rebellious people, that there were some who feared the Lord, some who valued his name, some who believed the Lord was worthy of their worship. And so it says they got together and spoke with one another. They wrote a book of remembrance before the Lord, remembering those who had feared him. It had been charged that God was ignoring evil to the detriment of those who fear him. But here are some who are saying, no, God has not forgotten us. He has kept his promises. He has been faithful to us, to those who trust him and who, who walk with him. God says in verse 17 of those who fear him, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God assures his people once again that while it might appear to our eyes right now that the evil are rewarded and that the righteous are punished, 
Worshiping the Lord will prove to be worth it. When the Lord comes to make up his treasured possession, those who fear him, those who believe in him will be spared like a son who serves faithfully. God assures his people that there is a day coming when the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be plain for all to see. A day when every evildoer will meet the swift and final justice of God. They questioned God's worth. Many do the same today, do they not? They would say that what we're doing here this morning, what we do as we gather in this place or as we watch online, that it's ultimately just about soothing our own feelings or somehow making us feel better in this moment, but that it's ultimately and eternally pointless. Perhaps you're wrestling with that question today. Is God worth it? you are here, how the book of Malachi ends. Starting in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb and for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God says to his people, to those who still fear his name, those who keep believing in the midst of the swirling questions, he says, hang on. He says, I know it's dark now, but look to the horizon. The sun will rise. He says, I know there's sickness now, but healing is on the way. He knows that grief and sorrow are heavy in this broken and fallen world, but he says freedom and joy are coming like calves leaping from the stall. And so he says, remember the law, keep my commandments, trust me, follow me, walk with me, it will be worth it. And then that was it. That was it for 400 years. They questioned God's love, God's justice, and God's worth. And in the darkness of night, God pointed to the horizon, speaking the last words, of Scripture we would see and hear for 400 years. 400 years of waffling between faith and apathy and outright rebellion. 400 more years of questions. And then God gives an answer. You might need to turn a page or two this morning, but the next verse in your Bible, beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. God gives an answer. Jesus answers every question. You may remember God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. You may remember that he promised David that his throne would be established forever. In the day of Malachi, in the day of David, in the day of Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve, God has been pointing 
to an answer to all of the questions that sin has brought into the world. And Jesus is that answer. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David, the fulfillment of God's promises to them. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, throughout the Gospels, 12 times specifically, though, in the Gospel of Matthew, we come across an Old Testament prophecy that is said to be fulfilled in Jesus. One of those is Matthew 2.15, which lets us know Jesus is not just the son of David and the son of Abraham, but that he is also the son of God. 400 years, and then the birth of Jesus, Christmas. God taking on human flesh and stepping into the darkness and the sin-infested world in which we live to answer every question. So this morning, are you questioning God's love? If so, then look to Jesus and see God's love for you. John chapter 3 Verse 16 and following says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Can you imagine after 400 years of, after they'd been told to look to the horizon, the light finally comes, and they love the darkness rather than the light? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. How has God loved us? That was the question in Malachi's day. The answer in our day is clear. He sent his son to save whosoever turns to him in faith. This morning, if you are questioning God's love for you, then look to Jesus and see that the son of God, instead of clinging to the rights of his royal position, took on human flesh, stepped into this dark and broken world, stepped into our mess to rescue you and me. Or this morning, are you questioning God's justice, his righteousness? Once again, look to Jesus and see God's righteous character on display. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is the God of justice? Jesus lived in perfect righteousness so that he might lay down his life to take on the judgment our sin deserves. So that when Jesus died on the cross, our sin was on him. And when we place our faith in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed or assigned to 
us so that God pours out his grace upon us as a gift, not merely pretending that justice has been done, but because our debt has been paid in full by Jesus. If you're questioning God's justice or his righteousness today, then look to Jesus and see that God put him forward as payment for our sins so that we can receive the reward he earned, so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters who faithfully serve the Father. Whether you're questioning God's love or justice this morning, Jesus is the answer God has given. We said Jesus answered every question, right? So there's one more. Today, are you questioning God's worth? Again, look to Jesus and see his worth on full display. Hear the announcement of the angels at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy for all people. Matthew 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Is God worthy of your life? Is he worthy of your worship? Jesus offers a resounding answer to that question, offering joy and peace that never end to those who place their faith in him, right? We're talking deeply abiding, eternal joy, joy that is worth giving up everything for. People asked Malachi, what's the profit of our keeping this charge? What's our, what good does it do us to believe and to walk according to the word of the Lord? But Jesus asked us a different question. Matthew chapter 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This morning, if you're wondering whether following Jesus is worth it, if you're wondering whether it's worth what it might cost you, the sin or the lifestyle that you might need to leave behind in order to follow him, if you're wondering if Jesus is worth laying down your pride and humbling yourself before him. I'm here to tell you today, and I think there are more in this place who would agree that yes, yes, he is worth it. This morning, if you're wrestling with that question and you've made that decision that Jesus is worth it, that you want to place your faith in him and that you want to follow him with your life as we've seen Yolanda declare this morning in these baptismal waters, then there are ways that you can respond and you'll see those on the screen. If you're at home, you can text us, you can call us on those numbers you see there, you can reach out to our staff or here in this place this morning as we respond, you can come to this altar and pray. As our service ends, I would love to talk with you more about who Jesus is and about what he has done for you and how you can take that next step in following him. There are others around you who would love to talk with you more about that as well. This morning, I encourage you to respond as God is leading you in your heart this morning because God's love, God's justice, God's worth are on full display in Jesus.
when God's people were questioning everything, and when the night was at its darkest, he pointed them to the sun of righteousness that was rising on the horizon to bring light to a dark world, to bring healing from sin and sickness, to bring joy and freedom like calves leaping from the stall. Malachi and the people in his day looked forward to the light and the life that we have received in Jesus. They looked forward to joy and freedom we experience. And so this morning, we have the privilege and the ability to sing what Malachi prophesied. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. Would you stand and lift our voices together as we sing? Hark the herald angels sing as we celebrate this morning that Jesus answers every question as we proclaim glory to the newborn King.